To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the end of the week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm Ed Hammond, and I'm joined again this week by Jason Kelly. And also joining us is one of our hedge fund reporters here at Bloomberg, Emma Palmer. The podcast team are cracking the whip this week, even though there is no M&A news really to speak of today. That does not mean there's going to be no show. So we uh, instead, we're going to focus on a different kind of angle for us. We're going to look at Wall Street and why Wall Street names certain things the way it does and a bit around the sort of I guess more broadly Jason correct me if this is wrong but the sort of nomenclature of Wall Street generally what's in a name what's in a name exactly that's what we should have called it what's in a name we could just go back to the beginning and I could say what's in a name that's a better setup <laughs> but Emma you wrote this brilliant story right last week that caught both Jason and I's eyes and it is about hedge funds calling themselves anything but hedge funds to try and get money through the front door. Explain, Mm because this is a great issue and something that I've found annoying for ages at hedge funds, um, or people say they work in hedge funds, and then you find out that actually what they do is nothing to do with hedging (laughs) at all. Precisely. So that's kind of the crux of um, of, of this story, which is looking at investors in hedge funds, some foundations and consultants, and how they go about pitching hedge funds to their clients. And some of them that we spoke to say, you know what, we don't call them hedge funds, partly because they have a bad rap, and partly because really what is in a name, they don't hedge sometimes. And so They've adopted some other sort of terms like marketable alternatives. They'll say, you know what, we're investing in credit, we're investing in equity, keeping those buckets really broad um, and fitting a lot more things sort of under them um, as opposed to saying, you know what, we're investing in hedge funds lest people don't understand what you're saying or pivot to the most negative um, sort of impression of them. Right. So you're talking about sort of pensions and endowments and these people who who literally have to go to ultimately their customers and beneficiaries, mm-hmm. yes. right, who sometimes are teachers or firefighters or professors at, at universities, mm-hmm. and they're reading the headlines, they're listening to politicians, and they're saying, whatever you do, don't put me in a hedge fund, Exactly, right? exactly. You know, the board sometimes isn't always aware of the, the nitty-gritty of picking one manager of another manager, and they just sort of hear the, the headline stories of this, you know, Hedge fund managers either losing a lot of money or some of some other concerns about sort of the industry broadly, um, and or they're watching the show Billions on Showtime, right? <laughs> right, or they're reading the New York Post and it's people throwing other people, in, diminutive people, into swimming pools at parties in Hampton. It's that kind of culture, right? That's the culture we all think of when we think of hedge funds, right? And and that's certainly not every manager, certainly not everyone in the space, but there is a perception of the industry that I think some are trying to combat, and some of the people that uh, we've spoken to who do you know, use these different terms, they're still pretty bullish on the industry. They like investing in managers and they try to go for the ones that are most profitable, um, but also have to mitigate their perception. And there's also a sense of, well, the name hedge fund has evolved. And if you don't hedge, but you charge the fees of a hedge fund and you have the structure of a hedge fund, well, are you in fact a hedge fund? If you don't really go short securities, should you pay 2 and 20 for a fund that's maybe long biased? long only, 
And then there are some funds that, well, they don't do traditional hedge fund investing, but they do more like direct lending, specialty finance, litigation finance. And they charge these hedge fund fees and they invest in these really unique niches of the industry. But technically, it's not long short. So there's a re-envisioning of, of this term. It's wild. It's like this should have happened so long ago. Yeah. Right. Because we I mean, we in the press are partly responsible for this because there's just this lazy culture around like we call it anything that does any kind of, uh, you know, event or activism or long short. We call them hedge funds and we call anything that does any kind of buying of non-public assets private equity. Private equity. Mm -hmm. Well, and this was one of the things because as Ed well knows and Hemant knows well, I'm a total private equity nerd. I admit it. And one of the things that really caught my eye about this story is this is largely what happened in many ways, although much more industry driven, I think, in the 1990s with private equity, which for a long time was leverage buyouts. Right. You know, it was the LBO business. And when you go back to the 80s and you think about the early days of KKR, the very, very early days of Blackstone, which was found in 85, KKR goes all the way back to 1976. But you know, they had to shed this image, largely formed by a book called Barbarians at the Gate, which is a seminal work about the the LBO business in the late 80s and, and early 90s. But over the 1990s, people said, well, why don't we call it private equity instead? That sounds much more elegant. And leverage buyout sort of has this bad reputation. So if we say to people we're, we're doing private equity, maybe they'll give us more money. But the reputation of private equity, you could argue, is now... Similarly, sullied because people associate it so with it's time to come up with a new name. leveraging, sweating assets too right. hard, firing lots of people. Right. They got to come up with a new name. They do. Do you think a movement is underfoot among some of your contacts? You know, I, I have had this conversation with people over the years, and but nobody can come up with something that is really fits the bill. I mean, one of the there are a couple of things that have happened though. I mean, one is that they started to talk about growth equity as a, a little bit of a spinoff of sorts or, or some something that sits between venture capital, which venture capital, by the way, has had this amazing reputation for years. And when you talk to people in Washington about venture capital versus private equity, politicians would say, well, venture capital is amazing. They create all these jobs and it's about innovation. And you know, look at all the companies that have been created uh, by venture capitalists, private equity, that's barbarians at the gate. That's LBOs. That's debt and firing. And Mitt Romney had to carry that around in the 2012 uh, election cycle in a very big way. I mean, the other thing that's happened in private equity is, is it's expanded to be more alternative assets. So that's one of the euphemisms that, that's come up that also has, as Hema knows, mm -hmm. it, hedge funds often fall into that. But crucially, well. if private equity funds just start saying that they are alternative asset managers, they can't really justify charging the fees that they charge because then they just become black right. rocks. Right. That's true. That's true. Although, you know, the and I think this goes back to a key premise of, of your story, Hema, what the investors really want are the results. Right. And, right. and if they have to call it something different in order to get that money, because they need this money, they, they need the money and the profits that these guys are generating. And they just sort right. of have to. I mean, there's a certain kind of sleight of hand that's happening here. Right. Yes. And I think it's about 
it is about the money, right? And you go for the managers that ultimately bring you those returns. And it's about informing, I think, the people, that your clients, if you're an allocator, trying to get them to pay more attention to what exactly is the strategy, that where, where are we putting your money? And let me explain to you how it works so that you're not maybe focusing on, on the name, but it's like, okay, they're specifically going to invest in these kinds of things. They're doing this kind of strategy. Trying to inform people uh, is, is the impression that, that I got. Um, and that way, it's a lot easier to put that money to work with a manager that you um, wholeheartedly think is going to make you money, which is really the bottom line. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ed, have you seen this play out Because across Wall Street more, more broadly? broadly? Well, you see, I, when, I, when I think of it in my world, I think of it, well, two bits are relevant here. Activists, which... You know, we used to call activist hedge funds and now we just call activist investors. And actually, activist hedge funds is a total mischaracterization because a lot of them, they don't hedge. Yeah, they're, they're just, not hedging. They, right. They, they invest and they bully. But I think there's, and I kind of was thinking about this before we <laughs> yeah, came but on. Bully funds doesn't but, work But so this well. is like <laughs> almost like a PR generated cycle anyway, because, you know, look, activist, if we think of activist hedge funds, they now call themselves engaged shareholders because it sounds better. It sounds more shareholder friendly. And. If that's you, a good and, one. And, right. That. And, really and before good. they were engaged shareholders, they were activist hedge funds. Before they were activist hedge funds, they were green mailers. And green mailers, really, it's just like a pejorative term that companies and their PRs came up with for shareholders who were more engaged than they wanted them to be. Right. So it's kind of like gone in a big circle. And now, you know, you could say the activists are trying to reclaim the ground. So I think some of it, that plays out some of it on my side. So this is this ridiculousness around the names and just, you know, people choosing different names for basically doing the same thing because it makes them seem like a softer touch. And the other area where it's interesting is we see it in the small investment banks who used to be called merchant banks and are now called boutique investment banks, which still to me just sounds ridiculous because it doesn't... I think think they call themselves boutique just to differentiate themselves from the big bulge bracket banks and also like right. post-financial like a, crisis it's like a, a boutique cool thing hotel <laughs> you know it's like oh I'm, i don't i don't go in for those big nameless faceless brands right that, this is a more bespoke kind of offer so you go into because, like the molus office and it's yeah. got like purple floor lighting and kind of like <laughs> weird ambience that you wouldn't necessarily get in goldman sachs that, that's that's probably i'm trying to imagine ken mullis under a disco ball but you know i think that, like a lot of this and the, sort of the, the overall picture of this comes from us in the media because you know there is a and I said earlier in the show there is a laziness here you know when I talk to lay people like when I talk to my mum she works in children's books like she calls anyone who's even remotely involved in finance a banker she doesn't differentiate right so you could be in hedge funding private equity you could work as a teller in a bank you're just a banker she doesn't think about it but I feel like we in the media are kind of 
we partly responsible for this? I mean, like we call Wall Street Wall Street because it's much easier than actually like breaking down the financial services industry into its composite parts. I still have to explain what private equity is to people all the time. I think I understand what it is. <laughs> yeah, not not it's it, it's not always perfectly apparent. But to the point that you were making to Hemmer, and and I would ask you the same thing for private equity. Like, if you are actually making money, it doesn't matter whether you have a stupid name or a sensible name. Whether you're called something stone, something rock, something river, something tree. It, yeah, can we talk about that for a second? Well, this is interesting. We 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 were we were going back and forth before the show about sort of the the use of like the natural world lexicon in in private equity. Like, what is that about? Isn't there some generator out there, Hema, that you can use to come up with your ideal private equity name? There's a hedge fund generator. Someone online made this fun little gadget online, and and you press a button, and it turns out kind of typical hedge fund names, something walk, something creek, river, um, capital management. But why? Um, Like, what does it mean? Why why all these, like, geographical features. Well, there, and I, I can speak to this a little bit. I mean, Blackstone actually has a very cool uh, origin story, which is it derives from basically it's Peterson and Steve Schwartzman were the two founders. And so Petra is the stone and, and Schwartz, Schwartz is, is the black. So they came up with Blackstone. So in part, they may be to blame. I mean, they were they were founded in 1985 because we've gotten all you know. BlackRock was part of Blackstone, so they 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 so hold it's the a kind of for that. weird like translative but, portmanteau of their names. It is, that, which actually has some so that's meaning. Le- that's legit. But when you think about all the like Crestview and <laughs> there's what there's one from years ago. Arrowcross. Our yes. our friend Jonathan Keener and I wrote about Co- Cove View, which is a bit of a mouthful and you know there are lots of different iterations of this yeah. but i don't i don't totally have an answer as to why people do it maybe they Hammer, it, it, i'm going to put you on the yeah. spot here does it does it you've written about this before mm-hmm. we we found an old story by you which is has this very interesting very interesting to me factoid in it which is that if you have an authoritative sounding word in your name mm-hmm. As a private equity or as a hedge fund, I'm, I'm as assuming a as a hedge fund. All right, so as a hedge fund, you will be able to bring in, and you've got a very exact figure here, two hundred twenty-seven thousand dollars a year extra. So yes. it obviously does matter having a mm-hmm. name that has rock or stone or river or something like that. Well, per this study, it was a name that has gravitas in the name in some manner. And that, according to the study, and it looked at over 18,000 hedge fund names, um, said that, you know, these these funds that have gravitas-laden names attract more money, especially if the word um, references economics, nations, and politics. And they do sort of add this sort of hedge in here that, you know, when an allocator realizes the performance of the fund, they adjust their their exposure to that fund accordingly, which makes sense. But the very fact that a name could bring you, like, and any measurable amount of increase in, in capital based it's on the insane, name alone. It's insane alone. to me. And this, the report actually factored in, controlled for the fund's manager and the fund's performance. They took that out as they examined it. See, this, this um, makes me worried that there's so much dumb money in the world because that's like saying, like, <laughs> I trust the guy more because he has, like, some tattoo in Latin on his bicep. It's, it's <laughs> absurd, right? And, I mean, we did speak to an actual allocator to to gauge the, the, the take on the study, and he said, you know what, yes, you know, it has some impact, but obviously they care about the numbers, they care about the track record. I think money will always matter. At most, you know, the the profits will always 
um, be the, of utmost importance. But, I mean, the fact that it has any sort of bearing at all is is kind of fascinating. And questionable. Um, and questionable. Um, point 72, for example, so we were talking about names earlier. Point 72 is named um, after the headquartered location in Stanford, 72 Cumming Point Road. Point so, 72 being uh, Stevie Steve Cohen's, Cohen's firm. new firm, post-SAC. Right. And it was a family office between. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, so that's one situation where there's a reference point to something geographical. I remember one manager speaking to me and explaining the name of their firm, which I don't recall, but it was something kind of random sounding. And um, they explained the backstory behind it, behind it, and it sounded very sort of personal. And I don't know. It's, it struck me as as a little removed from. The actual, I feel like, like there, there are also manager. a lot of like second home references and things yes. like that. You know, childhood home. We should yeah. say friend of the podcast, Steve Lippin, who you know, ex Brunswick, ex Wall Street Journal PR guru, uh, started his own shop when uh, late last year Gladstone. and called it Gladstone. And I think Gladstone, Gladstone is is the it's the street that he has a house on in Montauk. So we actually go. Google Earthed it and we found the house. And so there, there you go. Like that's, we were doing proper journalist work there. So I think, but that is right. There's a lot of like second home names yeah. in these things. It's and you wonder why hedge fund guys get a bad reputation. <laughs> yeah. And why people are trying to call themselves anything. But and sentimental value, I think, too. People reference their childhood. Anyway, I thought that was a fascinating discussion. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground, and I think next week we'll all try and come up with names for our own private equity and hedge funds. It's, it's, now that I'm trying to think of it in my head, it's actually harder. I think that's our I assignment, have. is to come, come with something that hasn't been used yet. And doesn't involve a geographical feature or an animal. Yeah. Okay, that's a good challenge. So that is it for another episode of Deal of the Week. Thank you very much, Hema and Jason, for joining me for that fascinating discussion. Uh, Magnus, our usual producer, is away in Nashville, I think, this week. I don't know what he's doing, but apparently it's very popular there with the Swedes. So I just have to thank Tofa Forhez, who's producing the show for us this week, and see you again next week. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.